This week, uh, as I said, this is the last in this sermon series, and I hope that this has been a beneficial series for you. I, I hope, I know that it might have felt a little bit cheerleadery, <laughs> like, this is who we are, and we're great, um, and this is who we are, and I do think we're great, um, but, <laughs> but I'm, I'm hoping that this is also an opportunity for you to think deeply about, about uh, the issues that I've been bringing up. Uh, if you're new here this morning, and as Ellen said, I know that's an intimidating thing to be new to a church, and so we want to we welcome you and give a little backstory of who we are. We are uh, a movement of churches, uh, thousands of churches, millions of people across the world uh, who hail back to the early 1800s. Hail back to sounds nice, doesn't it? That sounded kind of like old-fashioned. To the early 1800s and what we call the Second Great Awakening, a great revival that sprang up on the frontier of the United States. Uh, we are called the Stone Campbell or Restoration Movement. And if I, if I made like kind of a nutshell of who we are, this is how I would, this is how I would phrase it. Um, what I've been working on for a while here, this is what I would say. I'd say we are a movement of Christians only, who believe that the Bible alone can unify Christians to increase worship and evangelize the world. Now, if you're a, a Stone Campbell or Restoration scholar today, you might quibble with this, but this is my definition. I think it's really a good one to kind of summarize who we are and kind of cast a positive vision. A lot of times we've been negative We've set ourselves up against who we are not. We are not like those Baptists. We are not like those charismatic. We're not like whoever. We're not them. This is a positive vision. This is who we are going forward. This is how we see God moving. Now, this kind of unity, this kind of worship, this kind of evangelism can be done, and it can unify Christians. And it can be done based upon principles of unity, which we talked about last week. So if you weren't here, you can hop online, odcc.org, and, and listen to that sermon, or and then it can also be uh, done through the practices of unity, which we're going to talk about today. And so we all live in these, this sphere. We all live in the sphere of practices and principles. We might call them beliefs or uh, thoughts. We, we have things that we think that translate into our lives. I think that I love my teeth, and I want to keep them as long as I can. And I think that if I brush and floss, that might be possible. And so I practice something. I know this is kind of a dumb example, but that's what came to my mind. I don't know why. But, uh, uh, so I practice then that care. So I have a belief that kind of flows out of a practice. Last week, we talked about the beliefs, the principles. This week, I want to talk about the practices, the things that we, that we actually do. Now, if you remember last week, one of the core principles of our movement is where the Bible speaks, we speak, where... God, oh man, that, was, that warmed the cockles of my heart. It was lovely, thank you. Yeah, and, and that's a principle that we try to take really seriously, and I think you're going to see that at work today. And it actually ends up being kind of controversial, but we're trying not to be. It's not an attempt to be controversial, it just sometimes happens. But that's one of our core principles. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. And so if we ask the question, this has kind of been the core thesis question of each one of these sermons, what is being restored? If we're a part of the restoration movement, what are we restoring, right? So what we're restoring or talking about today is the practices of Christian worship and unity. And core practices, two especially core practices of Christian worship and unity. And this is really across the board. Almost all Christians practice some version of baptism and some version of communion. I can't think of any Christian groups that don't do 
uh, at least some version of that. The problem is, is that if you've been, like the Lytles, traveling around, you've gone to different churches, you're going to end up in a church that does each one of those very differently. Very differently. And those are core, based upon core beliefs and principles of those churches. And so we're asking questions, well, well, if there's so much diversity of opinion and so much diversity of practice, what's the, what's the question? Who's right? <laughs> because you're doing it your way and I'm doing it my way and suddenly we might not be able to do it together, right? And so th- those become really important issues of division between us and, and our, our Lutheran brothers and sisters next door. They do things differently than we do. Well, let me set up then. The first institution that we're going to talk about, first ordinance, whatever you want to call it, uh, is baptism. Uh, and baptism really became a question um, by this guy. Good looking dude. Yeah. I'm glad you caught that. It's, uh, it's important, you know. Anyway, not everyone's perfect. His name is Walter Scott, and Walter Scott was one of the big four founders of our movement. Thomas Campbell, Alexander Campbell, Barton Stone, Walter Scott. Walter Scott was the most ardent evangelist. In 1827, he was basically hired full-time. All we want you to do is go and preach and plant churches. Now, this is a revivalistic kind of preaching. You go to a field, you pull a stump, you stand on that stump, and you say... Be converted. Turn to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Like this, this is all of it. Anybody ever been to those old timey revivals? Something like that. You know, they don't really do those so much anymore. But but that that's what was going on. That's what he's doing. He's preaching these messages. Now, if you've ever been to, a, and maybe even today you're here and you're like, well, I, you know, I believe in Jesus and I believe in God. I believe in these things, but I've never really taken the step. I don't know how to respond. What am I supposed to? What am I supposed to do? to respond to this belief that I have, this principle that I have in my mind. I do believe where the Bible speaks, we speak. I, I, I do believe I ought to do the things that I see in the scriptures. What, how do I respond? Right, that's a good question. That's a great question. And if you've ever been to a, uh, a revival or maybe, maybe a, a, some kind of church meeting or something and they say, all right, now if you, if you want to make a decision for Christ, come down front and you can talk to our guys. Or, hey, raise your hand if you're going to receive Jesus tonight. Or Ellen gave me a track that she got at Art, Art, uh, Art Prize this week that I read and it was fantastically wrong. In the back, <laughs> the, last, the last page... <laughs> The last page of the track, there's this, this little, like, uh, little, you know, pray, the sinner's prayer. Have you ever heard the sinner's prayer? Like, you have to respond. Jesus is calling. How do you respond to that? Now, what's our principle again? Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. So Scott's going to go, and he's going to preach these evangelistic messages. He's going to ask himself, okay, I know there's going to come a point where I need to tell people respond to the gospel. I know there's going to come a point. Going to come. I know there's going to be a point when somebody is going to say, I believe you, what do I do? And Scott says, based on the principle, well, let's go back to the Bible. What what does the Bible say? And wouldn't you know it, there's a verse for that. (laughs) Wouldn't you know it, this actually happened. Peter, the apostle, the first sermon, he delivers this sermon. He says, you guys crucified Jesus the one God sent to redeem you, but not quite that's okay, but this was a part of God's plan that he would die to save you. And as he's proclaiming this message, 
the people who are all standing around him say, what do we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is really nice and formulaic, isn't it? Like, you could memorize this, and you, if you delivered a, a gospel message, or maybe you're sharing, maybe you're sharing Jesus with some, some friend or family member or enemy or somebody at work, and you're saying, man, Jesus died to, to save you, and, 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 like, this is, and they say, well, what do I do? And you say, well, you turn from your sin, repent, give, give, give up your sin, be immersed, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's all kind of right there, really neat and tidy. Now, immediately you run into an issue because this word, baptize, is done differently by every, you know, all these different churches. Some people sprinkle the heads of infants. Some people immerse, like totally immerse infants. Some people only do it for believers. And the issue is really this word. Because this word right here, repent, that's an English word. In Greek, it's metanoia. But we didn't translate when you go from Greek to English, right? If you're going to translate a book from German to English, you use what kind of words? English words, right? If I throw German words in there, whatever it would be, you'd be lost, right? I mean, we, we don't read German. We, we read English. And so when you translate, you go from, you go from the, 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 the native language into the... And this word, so repent, that's an English word. They translate, just brought it right over. Well, okay, that repent's the English word. This one, however, this is a Greek word, actually. Baptizo. It's just a Greek word. And they just slid it right over from Greek to English because if you translate that literally, it means to immerse. You take something and you put it underwater. You immerse your dishes. You immerse yourself when you're washing yourself. That's just what the word means. And so, again, what's our principle? Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. And what we're doing is we're just trying to say, okay, what did they do? We're trying to set aside... All of the difference, because you do it your way, and I do it my way, and somebody down the street does it a different way. We've all got these traditions and backstories and confessions and creeds and ideas and, and, and all of this stuff. Let's, okay, bracket that for a second and just look at this text and say, okay, black and white, what did they do? And let's go and just do that, and let's just preach that. So that's what Scott did. Now, of course, that made enemies, because there are lots of people who, you know, they, they sprinkle that maybe you grew up in like a Lutheran or Methodist or Roman Catholic church. They do it differently. And so Scott didn't. He, he, he tried to stick to the text as closely as he could. Well, now, the Baptists on the frontier, you can imagine what they thought. Right? Yeah, they're on our side, those dirty, you know, those dirty Methodists and Presbyterians sprinkling infants. These guys are on our side. You know, they're preaching what we're preaching, except for one little problem. This right here, forgiveness of your sins. Now, again, this is all Scott's doing. He is, like, lifting the text, and he's preaching the text. He's not a systematic theologian. He's not trying to answer all of the questions about the, the, about the history of the church. And, and he's not, he is just trying to proclaim Christ and bring people to a knowledge of him. That's all he is trying to do. But this is a sticking point right here, because if you grew up Baptist, you might, you might well know that, that they don't hold any salvific value to baptism, they and others don't hold any, any real meaning to it other than to say, and maybe you've heard this cliche, it's an outward sign of an inward thing or inward working, something like that, which is to reduce baptism to a moment of obedience. Jesus, the Bible says you should be immersed, and so you should be immersed. Like, that's all that's happening there. But Scott's proclaiming, and he's just reading the text, he's just preaching this, and so the Baptists pretty soon don't like it, the Methodists don't like it, 
Nobody likes us. <laughs> and this is, this, is, this is a point of contention, a point of conflict that we, that we run into as we are trying to follow the principle because we're, we're, we're naive. There is a sense in which our reading of the scripture here is unsophisticated. We are not trying to answer deep theological questions of all of the intricacies of God's salvific work in your life. We're just trying to do what the Bible says. And we think that if everyone just kind of gets on board with the white of the black on the text, right? This text, then we could be unified. Now, this of course brings up a very important question that some of the early members of our movement began to ask, well then if it's for the forgiveness of sins, if you haven't been immersed, are your sins forgiven? And Alexander Campbell gets a letter to that extent. Are, are you saying, and that's what that person was hoping for, they were hoping that they could create a, a church that would condemn everyone who is not immersed. Alexander Campbell will have none of that. He says this. He says, should I find a pedo-baptist, which pedo is just a, a word for infant, so an infant baptizer, somebody who, who sprinkles the head of infants. Should I find a pedo-baptist more intelligent in the Christian scriptures, more spiritually minded, more devoted to the Lord than a Baptist, or one immersed on a profession of the ancient faith, I could not hesitate a moment in giving the preference of my heart to him that loveth most. Did I act otherwise, I would be a pure sectarian, a Pharisee among Christians. So let me put this in perspective for you. Let me put it all together as to what I'm trying to get across we really believe that something happens in baptism. Baptism is not just an act of obedience. It's not just, well, you know, God says to do it. I guess I'll do it, right? I mean, that's not, Baptists aren't quite like that. But that was a little pejorative. I didn't mean it that way. But it is not just an act of obedience. The scriptures connect it to really important salvific language. It connects it to the forgiveness of sins here in Acts Two thirty-eight. It connects it in Acts twenty-two sixteen. Rise and have your sins washed away, calling on the name of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter six, it connects it to our walk in the newness of life. Something happened in baptism when you when you died and raised. That raising up from that watery grave really mattered. Something really happened. You are really now a new a new person. 1 Peter 3, 21 through 22, connects the idea of baptism to the old story of Noah. You guys, everybody remember the story of Noah? Everybody with me? I don't need to tell it, do I? Say yes if I need to tell it. Okay, well, all right. Well, that's good. Yes. All right. So Noah, he connects it to the story of Noah. He says, baptism, like the story of Noah, like Noah who was saved through the, through the flood, baptism corresponds to that, now saves you, not because of the removal of dirt. It's not magic water, y'all, Right? No priest blessed it. It's not magic water. It is what? It is the sign of the confession of our hearts, the, the call that we're giving to God that we want to be clear through Jesus. This is all through you. And I love this big, long list of how awesome Jesus is. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone to the heavens, to the right hand of, the God, of God, where the angels, the authorities, and the powers, and everything else is subject to him. Amen. Because it's about Jesus, right? Not about the water. But the water still communicates something. And that's a mystery, we don't often like mysteries. We are a, a, we are a left-brain society, and we as a church are a left-brain church. None of y'all were dancing. Like four of you raised your hands during worship. Everyone else is awkwardly not knowing what to do with their hands in the pockets or holding them, right? Yes? 
I know you guys, we are not, we're not, you know, we're not used to this mystery thing. We want to have it all lined up and figured out. Well, are you telling me I'm in or out? Am I in or out? Tell me if I'm in or out. And the Bible's like, right, God's a mystery. Salvation is a mystery. If I look back at my life and I say, man, I'm glad I didn't die that day. And there are times we say, man, I could have died that day. There are times where God worked in my life when I was in complete rebellion to him. Absolute and utter rebellion to him. And he worked in my life. And he brought me back. And it's a mystery. I, I, don't, I can't explain it. I have no idea why. I, I don't even really know how until I'm like three days later and I look back and I'm like, wow, God really, he moved in me. I was baptized when I was seven. But there were times where, man, I was in utter rebellion to God, but God was still doing things, bringing me through. And so what is all of this to say? This is to say that salvation is a mystery and work of God. It is not something you concoct. It is not something you made happen. It is something that God does out of his grace and his love and his power and his authority. And we are convinced that a simple reading of the text is clear and definitional and sufficient to create clarity and unity and new converts to Christ. But we will not say we are the only Christians. Do you understand that? We will not say we are the only Christians. Now, if I can critique our church again, we frequently fail to realize what baptism is. Our error is that we frequently use it as an opportunity for my individual salvation, that it is all about me and Jesus. There is a moment that happens where it is, it is, it is, it is me, and it's not. It is you, but it's all of us. All of us are it's, it's communal. Have you ever thought, have you realized you can't baptize yourself? That's just a bath, right? <laughs> We're glad you do it. But it's not baptism. Baptism at least takes two. It is a communal event. It is an event where we are participating together in the salvation of an individual being brought out of death and into a new life, a new body, a new people, a new nation, a new promise. It's beautiful. And it is communal. And we often, often forget that God is drawing all of us. All of us. That you are not alone. You are not alone because God is with you. You are not alone because we are with you. We are with you. Paul draws this out in, in whoop, I didn't even give you, I apologize, that was one I was supposed to click. My bad. Oh, Thomas Campbell, did I talk about him? I went somewhere. I went astray somewhere. Where did I go astray? Bam, bam, bam. Nope, I forgot the slide. I'm sorry. Uh, Paul talks about how baptism is a unifying event in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, you can write that down because I'm sorry, I, th I thought I had the slide, I didn't. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling. And I love this line, you might have even heard it before. One faith, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is in all and through all. The church that is fighting in Corinth, he says this. He says, why are you fighting when you are all one? 
You are one body. You are one people. For in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 13. For in one spirit you were all baptized into one body. Whether Jew or Greek, that's a racial division. So we might say black or white. You might say Mexican or American. You fill in any racial division you want. Those things no longer matter. Those are no longer primarily definitional. The things that used to describe you that would create walls that would say, well, I am with this group and not with that group. Those, lo- those walls no longer exist because Christ demolished them on the cross so that he might create in himself one new people. And that's what you are. That's what baptism does. It washes away everything. Washes away everything and creates something that is utterly new. So this is why divisions in the church are so heretical, so evil. Whether we're talking about the divisions between us and other believers that go to a different church or we're talking about little gossipy backbitingness that happens in here. All of it. Evil. To the core. One of the things God hates most. That divisive spirit. Because you have been baptized. Now, I want to pay special attention to that communal nature, especially as we move into talking about communion I know baptism could be its own sermon series, so could communion, and so I'm trying to just give you a taste of how we think about this. Communion is one of the most important Christian ordinances as well. Baptism is kind of our initiating moment. Communion is our constant reminder. Communion is calling us constantly to remember. In fact, communion is what kicked off our whole movement. This is Thomas Campbell. the old days you know i don't i don't know they had gillette better back then the better smoothing things this is thomas campbell he was a a a minister uh in are you, are you ready for this write this down the seceder new light anti-burger presbyterian church so imagine putting that on a sign right it's a big big sign and all of those words have very specific meanings in ireland but he's in pennsylvania so Right? <laughs> Those things don't matter anymore. Uh, they, we don't have burgers, or, or we, when we do, they come on buns, right? That's, that's how it, those things work. And so th- this is no longer, for, for, for Campbell, th- this is no longer a thing. And so he does something scandalous. He invites Christians who belong to the other Presbyterian church down the road who don't have a church or a minister to come to communion. Outrageous, right? Outrageous. That's what he does. And infuriates his hierarchy, the people who are above him, who are, you know, sort of checking, making sure he's doing all the right things. He infuriates the elders, as it were. Like, you know, they're going to they're gonna call, call him out. And, and they do, in fact, they do, in fact, call him out. And it causes, it causes a ton of, ton of trouble. But I, I, I want you to hold on to that story for a second. Because what does Thomas Campbell understand? He understands the same thing that is true about communion as is true about baptism. You can't take communion by yourself. It doesn't work that way. It is a communal event. It's something in which we all gather to worship God. And one of the primary ways of worshiping God is remembering Jesus' sacrifice and the new body that he's created. Because this is not the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. This is a sign, a symbol, a call to remembrance of the body of Christ. But the body of Christ is here. It's in this room right now. It is us. We are the body of Christ. And if we fail to recognize this, there's no way we can recognize this properly. And Thomas Campbell practiced that. He didn't just believe it. 
He did it. And we're the same way. We don't just believe it. We do it. We don't check your membership cards when you come in. Do you ever notice that? <laughs> to take communion? Because if you walk in that door and you say, I'm a Christian, until you show me by your actions that you're not, you are. Thomas Campbell said that too. So we might ask the question, if we're going to sort of set aside, we, we know that everyone does it differently. Some people do it once a year. Some people do it quarterly. Some people do it once a month. Some people you know, do it this way or that. If we're, we're going to try to, we're going to try to, what are we going to do? Everyone who comes into the building has a different way of doing it. How do we do it? What's the right way? What's our principle? When the Bible speaks, we speak. So that's what they did. They tried to go back to the Bible. And the Bible doesn't give us a lot of specific ritualistic language. You ever go to a church, it's a very specific ritual. We've got to go through this and this and this and this. The Bible doesn't, it's very stark in its statements. And so we take the stark statements. Uh, for instance, there is not anything, I wish Dowden was here today, I think he's traveling. There's not a statement that says, after Paul says, you may be seated, we must take communion. Right? So we can take it at the end of the service. We can, we can do it wherever you want, right? The, the, there's, there's room for fluidity, and yet there is instruction. And so we might go after it like this. How often should we take communion, and how ought we to do it? First, we look at the patterns. We see in Acts, we look and see into Acts, we say, well, what did they do? What kind of things did they practice? How did they, how did they do this thing? We read in the early chapters of Acts, as, as the believers are first coming to, the, to, this, to this new burgeoning faith, they're meeting together every day. And because they're together, they take communion, right? Because when you're together, you remember what brought you together. This room is full of people that I would never hang out with. Not because I don't want to hang out with you, but because there's no way we'd run into each other. I mean, you run in different circles. You may have different jobs. You may have different, we have different educations. We have different colors. We have different friends. We have different areas. We have all kinds of different, all kinds of things that the world sets up to separate. And yet this morning, there's a diverse group of people who's gathered together. Why do we gather together? We gather together on the Lord's day, Sunday, the day the Lord raised, to take communion. This is such an interesting story here in Acts chapter 20. Everybody know the Apostle Paul? Maybe you're new to church. But Apostle Paul is like kind of like, he wrote most of the New Testament. Like he's, a, he's an important dude. So if the Apostle Paul shows up to church today, you ought to come and hear him. <laughs> right? In Acts 20, Paul's about to leave. He's going to go away. He's going to a different city. And so all the believers gather. Why do you think they gathered? To take communion. It says specifically, we gathered on the first day of the week to break bread together. Not because Paul was there, not because Paul was leaving, not because Paul had something great to say. In fact, he put someone to sleep and the guy fell and died. So that's, look that one up. It's all so good. They gathered for the specific reason of remembering Jesus in the symbol and in the body. And so that's what we did. That's what we do. Every Sunday, we gather together you might not have a sermon, you might not have a song, but you will have communion, and it's still church. Because that's the high point in the service. That's the thing that matters most, remembering Jesus' sacrifice and remembering the body that he has called together and saved by his own grace and his own will and his own power and his own blood. Now, why do we do it? For those reasons. We remember the Lord, and we remember the church. We remember the Lord, and we remember all that he has done. Jesus says that this cup, as he's, as he's um, instituting the Lord's Supper, instituting communion, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance 
of me. Covenant is a really important word. It draws our minds to maybe contracts or pacts or, or deals. It is, it is something that is between us and God. And covenants in the Bible, like a marriage covenant, you may think a marriage covenant cannot be broken, even though we do. Um, this covenant idea is something that is eternal until the rules or the strictures of the covenant are broken and shattered. But God is the covenant keeper, even as his people walk away, even as his people err, even as his people uh, you know, break all of the tenets of the covenant, God is still faithful to his people. And that's the idea of this, this covenant that we have with God. And covenants in the Bible always have signs, they always have symbols. You might think of, of, of Passover with the lamb, right? The lamb, and Jesus is in fact called our Passover lamb. He is the one that symbolizes the fact that God has now made a new pact of grace between his people, and himself. And this is a sign, then, not just of my individual salvation, my individual standing before God, which is also true, but we so frequently emphasize our individual salvation and so rarely emphasize that this is a moment of covenantal fellowship, that we are gathered together for this purpose. In fact, one of the earliest texts outside of the Bible, it's written around 100, so this is after the Bible has been completed, but it's, again, one of the earliest texts called the Didache, says this. This is what uh, the prayer that the, the author of the Didache recommends that the churches pray. Just as the bread was scattered upon the mountains, like grain, right? Grain was scattered, and then was gathered and baked or made into one, flat, one, one loaf, uh, and became one, so may your church, God's church, be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. And this echoes what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not participation in the blood of Christ. And the bread that we break is it not participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread And we who are many are one body, we all partake of the one bread. So we are evidence of the grace of God upon a diverse group of people devoid of division and brought together because of the power and grace of Jesus Christ. So let me bring an application to this. What do all of these things mean? They should create, they can create, they will create if we practice them. Unity in worship. Unity and worship. Because we can all agree what is written in the scriptures. And we can all take a simple reading of that text and say, well, that's what they did. And so we can do that. We can all agree that's what they did because it's right there, black and white. Now, there are all kinds of mysteries and there's all kinds of arguments and there's all kinds of perspectives that we could stack on top of it. And we don't want to get into all of that because the more you try to define something and explain something, the more complicated it gets and the more people have to disagree with you, right? Because some of you guys just want to disagree with me no matter what. It doesn't matter what I say. You're going to say... And that's often the way I, I am too, right? There's just, that's that's a, like this human nature. This, well, you're wrong because, I don't know, but give me a second, I'll come up with it, right? I mean, that's, but if we can agree on the simple, simple reading the text, we can be unified with other Christians. I've, I've actually really never had a Christian say it. No, I don't want to take, well, Catholics will, but other, aside from the Roman Catholics, like you, you can pretty much take communion with, any, with anybody. Like that's just, that's okay. And so we can, we can unify there. And that's the idea. The idea is that we would bring more Christians together 
We begin to lay aside the traditions, the things that, that maybe we value, lay some of those things aside so that we can focus on what is right here and we can be more unified instead of more divided. And if we're more unified, the body of Christ is more together and it can proclaim more worship to God and we can be focused rather than defining and arguing, we can be focused on sharing the gospel, which is kind of what we're here for, right? So, unity and worship. Uh, the, the last one here uh, is love and service. You know, it's interesting, uh, it's, it's interesting the way John tells the story of the Last Supper of, the, of Jesus instituting communion is he doesn't actually talk about the communion table. Jesus uh, talks about, and John, remember, he comes in and he, he kind of strips down like a slave. And he comes in and he begins to wash the disciples' dirty poop and mud-caked feet. Washing their feet. Your Savior, your Lord, your God, washing feet. putting his hands there. And I love Peter because I would have done the same thing. I would have said, I would have said, no, no, no. That's not how this works. You're the master. We wash your feet. You don't wash ours. And Jesus says, if you don't let me do this, you can't have any part of me. And Peter, I love Peter because he's just off the cuff. He says, well, then give me a bath. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm in, Jesus. And Jesus says, do you understand what I've done for you? Do you understand the sign that I have just shown you. He says that the way that we're going to know you, the way that they'll know that you are my followers or that you love, the example that I have set before you, you should also do. For a servant is not greater than the master nor a messenger greater than the one that sent them. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you are a believer in Christ, if you have been immersed and brought into this great body of Christ, something new has begun. Something new has transpired. There is a unity and there is a new kind of worship and you belong to a new body. You are no longer yours. You're bought at a price. And so your love and service to one another must be as intense as your love and service to Jesus. And I think we have a real problem there because we are all in this room ready and willing. I know you guys, most of you anyway, and I know that you're willing to give up for Jesus, but are you willing to love and serve one another? Because if you want to love and serve God, you have to love and serve one another. Do you understand that? If you want to love and serve God, you have to love and serve one another because when we take communion, it isn't just a declaration of our own right standing with God. It's also a declaration, a declaration that as the bread was scattered across the mountains and, and brought into one loaf, so we partake because we are one. So we're going to do communion right now and we're going to do it a little bit differently and it's going to take audience participation. One of the things that we used to do at a church that we belonged to and we loved very much was when we passed communion to the next person, when it was the bread, you would pass it and you would say, body of Christ broken for you. And when you had the cup, you passed the cup and you said, blood of Christ shed for you. Because in doing this, we recognized that it wasn't just me that was saved, but the person next to me. And so this morning, I want you to do that. This is gonna stink if you don't do it. It'll be awesome if you do. <laughs> I can't make you, but this is what I want you to do. 
I want you to make eye contact with the person sitting next to you. And I want you to see in them Jesus. And I want you to see in them that Jesus' blood was shed for them. And I want you to see in them Jesus' body was broke for them. That you might understand the grace of God in yourself and in your neighbor. Can you do that? We're going to do it a little differently. So the guys are going to start at the back, and so it's going to come this way. And I want to hear some voices. Body of Christ broken for you. Blood of Christ shed for you. 